0: Welcome to the joy thrill ride of Story Story Night, where you hear true stories on a theme recorded live on stage and without notes. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. On this podcast, gather around our campfire for the feature storytellers from camp, our fourth show in our action theme season held on February 28, 2017 at Jump in downtown Boise. Here are our camp counselors, Hanako Wakatsuki and Tiffany Turner-Fight. Plus, a rebroadcast of the Slammer story by Emily Smith, which was turned into a short film and previewed at our show. Hanako Wakatsuki.
1: Okay. <clears throat> so I always knew that my family went to camp. It was something that we all knew but didn't really know. In third grade, I had to do a book report, so I chose a book that was written by a family member. It was kind of our family's coming-to-age book related to our family's history of going to camp. It's called For to Manzanar. This book was an easy out for me because I knew the story, how after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, it launched the United States into a two-front war, and how my family was put into camp for about three and a half years, and how we were never supposed to talk about it. But as a third grader, I didn't really understand the complexity of this time in history, or a family's history, or what camp really meant. So let me tell you about my family. My family can trace back our immigration story to the 1880s in Hawaii. Before World War II broke out, my family was living in Southern California in the Ocean Park area of Santa Monica. After the bombing of Pearl Harbor, my great-grandfather Ko was taken away by the FBI um, to Fort Lincoln in Bismarck, North Dakota, under the suspicion of colluding with the Japanese Empire. You see, my family was a fishing family. My great-grandfather was spotted out in the ocean, dumping chum overboard to catch fish But the US government perceived this as providing oil to the Imperial Japanese submarines off the coast of California. It took months to find out where my great grandfather went and almost a year to see him again. In the meantime, with the absence of my great grandfather, my grandfather, Woody, ended up stepping in as a head of household, becoming the de facto patriarch of our family. Not knowing what was going to happen, my grandfather at least had the foresight to keep the family living together, which in the end allowed my family to go. Um, to be placed in one camp. At this point in my grandfather's life, he was a young adult in his 20s, married with an infant. My grandfather was one of 10 children, where half of the kids were under the age of 18. So my grandfather was not only dealing with managing his small family, he was also taking care of his siblings, mother and grandmother. This was a huge burden to bear. This was not unusual for many Japanese-Americans families at this time. Immediately after the bombing in Pearl Harbor, the FBI rounded up many first-generation Japanese who were called Issei, who, were, um, who the government thought were suspects. You see, the Issei were barred from law, from becoming naturalized citizens until the 1950s. And most of the Issei that were taken away were men who were community leaders or religious leaders practicing Shintoism or Buddhism. This started the breakdown of the family unit. On February 19, 1942, President Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066, which gave broad military powers to allow for the exclusion of people from designated areas. Although the exclusion order did not specify an ethnic group, this came out in a time of high anti-Japanese sentiment on the West Coast, and the Japanese-American community disproportionately lost their civil liberties compared to other ethnic groups. So this executive order led to the forced removal of all people of all Japanese descent from the western states under the command of General DeWitt. My family was forcibly removed to Manzanar War Relocation Center in the Eastern Sierras near the entrance of Death Valley. This was one of 10 war relocation authority camps across the United States in desolate locations. There were two in California, Manzanar and Tule Lake, two in Arizona on Native American reservations, Gila River and Poston. There were two in the swamps of Arkansas, Rower and Drome. Then there was Topaz in Utah, Minidoka in Idaho, Amache in California, and Heart Mountain in Wyoming. My family lost everything when they were forced to camp, their home, their profession, and their dignity. They were only allowed to bring what they could carry, but they did not know where they were going. When my family arrived at Mansnar, they found a man-made desert in the Eastern Sierra that kicked up dust all the time. My grandparents originally shared a 2 barrack apartment with a large extended family of 12 people. An apartment was 16 by 20 feet, so imagine living with 12 people in the size of two living rooms. The barrack apartment was bare and built out of green wood, leading to gaps in the structure that did not protect them from the elements. There were cots for sleeping, a potbelly stove for heat, and one bulb hanging in the apartment for light. They were issued two army blankets for warmth but many folks use one blanket as a partition to create some privacy. Being from Southern California, my family was not prepared for the winter and used World War I surplus to keep themselves warm. Everything about camp was unusual. They had to stand in line to use the bathrooms, and the toilets did not have partitions. Many people found this humiliating. They had to stand in line at the mess halls to eat, and many kids ended up eating with their friends, further breaking down the family unit. My grandmother ended up having three kids while incarcerated. About 10,000 children were born at these 10 camps. Of the 120,000 people that were incarcerated, two-thirds of them were American citizens and half of the 120,000 were children. Almost all the children at camp had governmental files on them. Manzanar was the only camp to have an orphanage that stripped adopted families of their children if their kids were at least 1 16th Japanese. This is how you know that the force removal was racially motivated, because why would you imprison these children if it were not for their ethnic lineage? Even though the incarceration stripped my grandfather of his civil liberties, he still fought for the nation that held his wife and children as prisoners. He was drafted from camp and trained at Fort Snelling, Minnesota in the counterintelligence corps of the military intelligence service. He served in the Pacific front as a language specialist and helped with the occupation of Japan. This essentially left my grandmother to be a single mother of four in camp when he was deployed. When the camp was closing down, the government offered individuals $25 in a one way train ticket anywhere in the US. That was all they were given to rebuild their lives. My family resettled back in Southern California after the war. When my grandfather got out of the military, he was not able to find a job, even as a returning vet. He first tried being a door-to-door salesman and ended up becoming a nisei wrestler because white wrestlers needed an enemy to fight. His stage name was Professor Suki. In 1983, there was a congressional commission on the incarceration of Japanese during World War II. They held 20 hearings across the nation and they heard more than 750 testimonies. This congressional report was called Personal Justice Denied and identify that there were no convictions of any Japanese-Americans of espionage or sabotage, that, and that the Commission concluded that the promulgation of Executive Order 9066 was not justified by military necessity, and the decisions that followed from it was not driven by the analysis of military conditions. It was stated that the broad historical cause that shaped this, these decisions were race prejudice, war hysteria, and the failure of political leadership. This paved the way for redress for Japanese Americans and for the apology by President Reagan with the signing of the Civil Liberties Act of 1988. My grandmother received two apology letters, one from President Bush Senior and President Clinton. And I remember that she had both letters framed leading upstairs to her room, validating that the government acknowledged it was wrong that she lost three and a half years of her life and how half of her children were imprisoned as well. It must, have, uh, it must have lifted a huge weight off of her shoulders of the shame of the incarceration that she carried with her all those years. In 2012, Congress awarded Japanese American soldiers of the 442nd Regiment Combat Team, 100th Battalion, and the Military Intelligence Service, the Congressional Gold Medal, that the highest civilian honor that the US Congress can bestow. I was able to attend the ceremony at the Capitol and honor my grandfather who I never got to meet. It wasn't until college where I began to familiarize myself with this story again, but from a very different perspective, a more academic one. I was taken under the wing of Dr. Bob Sims, former dean of the College of Social Sciences and Public Affairs at Boise State University. His research focused on Minidoka. When I first talked to him over the phone, he asked me if I knew about Minidoka, and I lied to him, saying yes. You see, I grew up in West Boise, and we never discussed this in history class at all at school. And I took AP history, so I never learned about Minidoka. But I knew that Bob was a former dean of my college, so I didn't want to sound stupid, so I ended up lying. I remember going home and Googling Minidoka and was blown away that Idaho had an incarceration site as well. So from then on, I've been involved with the preservation of Japanese-American confinement sites across the United States. I used to work at Tula Lake Unit, a World War II Valor in the Pacific National Monument, which was one of the 10 incarceration camps that was turned into a segregation center in Northern California. I was on the board of the Friends of Minidoka for nine years, and they help with the preservation and development of the Minidoka National Historic Site. I volunteer for the Manzanar National Historic Site on their public archeology span programs yearly, and I am on the board of the Heart Mountain Wyoming Foundation that preserves the incarceration history and site in Wyoming. I have now come full circle with my family's history in camp and my current profession. You see, the War Relocation Authority that managed the prison camps was eventually directed by the Department of Interior. And in my current position, I am the Chief of Interpretation and Education at the Minidoka National Historic Site, managed by the National Park Service, directed by the Department of Interior. The World War II confinement of Japanese Americans is where my grandparents and I intersect although almost 75 years apart. I now realize how the World War II incarceration began the slow process of ripping away my family's dignity and how it became a cornerstone of the strength that my grandparents had to find from within to manage through this unbelievable time. It is the strength that I built my life upon, and I owe them for who I am. I chose this career path to work with the Japanese-American confinement sites to honor them, and to never forget what happens when the country exhibits race prejudice, war hysteria, and the failure of political leadership. We cannot let this happen again. There is a Japanese saying that many Japanese-Americans continue to embrace, I am what I am because of you. Thank you.
0: Tiffany turner fights.
2: Good evening. So in 2013, we were suffocating in suburbia, and I know that sounds totally dramatic, but we had a house, we had two cars, two careers, two kids, and two pets, a dog, and a guinea pig named Chocolate. (laughs) Fast forward to 2017, we've kind of come full circle. We have a house, we have two cars, we have two careers, still have two kids, we have one dog, no guinea pig. So what's changed? And no, the guinea pig was not the change maker. So what changed? We ended up camping for two years. So why did we do that? So thinking back a few years before 2013, I had run into an old friend and she invited me to a purse party. Some people might be able to relate to what a purse party is, like a candle party or you know, whatever those home parties are. And she lived in a suburb about 20 minutes from where our suburb was. So I went just to kind of catch up, and I walked in, and I walked in, and for the first 30 minutes, no one said a word to me. And they were my friends, neighbors, and friends, and they spent the first half hour comparing paint colors, like down to the, the brand and stock number of paint, like Ralph Lauren 140, dusty bluish, or something like that and the reason they were doing this is because I realized everyone there had the same floor plan in the same street and they just were comparing the light if they were west facing north facing whatever well this was totally lost on me for a few reasons one we don't paint we only paint if we sell a house in fact we lived for quite a few years with that 1980 Floral wallpaper, the kind that you can touch and feel the texture of every flower. We lived with that until we got ready to sell a house once. So we don't paint, so I couldn't relate to that. But I just felt really out of place. And the whole drive home, you know, back to my suburb, I thought, oh gosh, those people were not very nice and blah, 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 blah. Well, then I really thought, gosh, they're living in a bubble. They really need to get out of the bubble. And then I thought, oh crap, we're in a bubble too, because we have the same floor plan as everybody else on our street. I thought that is, this just something's not right, not feeling right, things aren't feeling good. And come to find out this house we were in, we didn't even like it, and we had this really high payment because we had bought it at the top of the market in 2006, didn't even like the house. It was a great neighborhood, don't, don't get me wrong, our bubble was very comfortable, it was very comforting. We had a great park, our kids could play, people were nice, everybody looked out for one another, but there was something missing. And then we had this really high payment because we had bought that house, because it had the best schools and the best area, and you know everything we thought we should do. And we had checked all those boxes, and then we still felt like, hmm, hmm, I don't know, something's not right here so we decided first we needed to sell the house okay let's just do that and then we'll figure out what our next steps are so one friday afternoon we uh, vacuumed and swept the house and locked the door and put the key in the lockbox, and kind of gave a high five to our for sale sign and we headed to the airport so we put the house on the market and our boys were 10 and 11 at the time, and we were going to go on our first major, like, international adventure. We were going to fly to the U.K. Because anybody who's sold a house before, especially if you have kids and a dog, and at that time we still had the guinea pig, you know it's really hard to keep the house clean. So we are like, it's probably best that we're not even there. So let's take off. market was pretty fast, so we didn't think it would be hard to sell it. So we fly to the UK and we got news that uh, when we were in Edinburgh, Scotland, that a house sold and we e signed the paperwork from there. And then the next day we took a train from Edinburgh, Scotland to Conwy, Wales, and our boys worked on a stack of worksheets like this that they had gotten from their school because we decided to take them out of school for a week in addition to the week they already had scheduled off. And it was A wonderful two weeks and a few things that that came to my mind is one we had to figure out how to be together for two weeks because although my kids were 10 and 11 we had never spent two weeks together as a family which makes me so sad to even say it now but I guess it's more common than I think at least I say that to make myself feel better because you know with two careers you take a week vacation here and there so we loved being together. We loved adventuring together. Our house had sold. We we're like, what are we gonna do next? We pack up the house and we ended up moving into a rental house. And we thought travel is what we need to do. We're gonna do this. What should we do? So we had lots of options we were considering. We thought about doing a like a six-month sabbatical kind of around the world trip, but the dog. We had since given the guinea pig away because did you know how much they eat? They eat guinea pigs eat like organic vegetables. They eat better than I do, and we, now that we sold the house, we couldn't really afford it. So anyway, we got rid of the guinea pig, but we still have the dog, and we thought, gosh, six, six months is a long time without the dog, and we never would have gotten a dog if we thought we were going to need to rehome it or find somebody to care for it. So we, we thought, okay, that's not a good idea, and then I happened across this group on Facebook, and it's called Full-Time Families. And I realized there were thousands of families in the United States out there camping or RVing full time. And this group immediately became a group of support, questions and answers. Um, and as I looked more into it, I thought, that is brilliant, because one, we can see this wonderful country, two, we can take our dog, not the guinea pig, but the dog. and um, three we'll get to just meet some amazing people and see some amazing people around the, around the country so we thought let's do that and then we thought okay so what are the logistics we've never towed anything ever and we ended up buying a twenty seven foot travel trailer twenty seven feet by eight feet those of you who do quick math can say that's just a touch over two hundred square feet and we lived in this for two years uh... but we towed that around the country for two years and we. In that two years some of the things we we did one our mission was to see as many family and friends around the country as we could and that ended up being almost 300 people 297 in fact because i kept track of some really odd statistics including we visited 56 unique costcos you think costco (laughs) in a 27 foot travel trailer teenage boys so we uh We saw 297 friends and families around the country, um, family around the country. We connected with over 50 families that we had met online through this full-time families community. We uh, went to 157 National Park Service parks um, and we traveled a total of 20,115 miles with the trailer attached. And it was, I think, 703 nights and 105 different campgrounds. So it was quite the adventure. And those are just some of the statistics. But we also stood on Civil War battlefields. We stood on the steps of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. We touched the plexiglass in front of the Bill of Rights and the Declaration of Independence. We shopped at the Mall of America in Michigan. Um, So we, Minnesota, sorry. Yeah, Minnesota. <laughs> so many states. So uh, <laughs> so we had, we had some really grand, grand, grand adventures. Um, and then how did we do it, though? Because two years is an awful long time. We decided if we were going to do this, we were going to go big and not go home. <laughs> we had sold our house. So we had lived in a rental for a year and a half and saved a lot of money. We are not independently wealthy. We had no lottery. We didn't even have a profit from the house because we had bought it at the top of the market. So we saved really hard for a year and a half and we thought if we're going to do this, make this investment in time, we need to go big. So we also resigned our careers and um, took the boys out of school, considered um, them homeschoolers or road schoolers as we called it, and we traveled around. We had saved enough for about a year's worth of expenses, Um, but about nine months in we had only on to three states (laughs) so we thought oh we're going to need more time so um, in the course of the two years my husband and i took three temporary jobs also some of you who might be RVers or have family that are might have heard this phrase it's called work camping it's where you work or volunteer in return for a full hookup campsite because when we, we we needed to defray costs a little bit let our savings go a little bit so that's how I found myself and our family for three months in Stonewall, Texas, um, and I was wearing a long-sleeved, long-dressed, 1915 German-Texan farm dress, because who knew there were tons of German immigrants to Texas in the late 1800s? I didn't know that. Uh, But I learned it quickly, and so we spent three months there, and in return for my 25 hours of volunteer work, we got a full hookup campsite. But that was a marvelous experience because I got to be in learning mode. You know, for the first time in years, I wasn't, uh, you know, career, and we weren't driving to soccer, and we weren't doing this and that. So I got to learn the history of the area, and I got to teach visitors how to take a pail of fresh milk and turn it into cheese and let it... fresh for 10 days without refrigeration. That was kind of the whole point of the park. And it was wonderful. And then my husband and I also took a job um, in a warehouse working for Amazon in an Amazon fulfillment center. And I never would have believed at 42 years old that I would have been pushing a little cart kind of like Hunger Games, if you think of like the maze, you know, in through this fulfillment center and packing, um, pulling products. In fact, I may have filled some of your boxes, so (laughs) you're welcome. So that uh, that was another one of the jobs we took, and then we also worked at a campground for a few months, but that helped us defray the costs. But truly, it was a year and a half in when we realized, well, we need to make some decisions and actually the decisions were kind of being made for us because we started the trip our boys were 11 and 12 adolescents now they're teenagers and teenage boys get big and their feet get big and at night my husband and I couldn't even use the restroom in our RV because our boys feet were hanging off their bunks and blocking access so we thought okay, I think we're about ready to wrap this up. So we uh, we started talking and we had about six more months of travel and we started saying, okay, I think we need to start figuring out where we're gonna settle and when we're gonna settle. And that's how we found ourselves in Boise. Out of the whole country, 40 states and numerous cities, we chose Boise to land. And what's so different about our lifestyle now and the reason we chose it is because we were in the suburbs. And like I said, it was a comfortable bubble. I'm not judging, Uh, just judging ourselves and our choices. Uh, But now we live, we have a little house, thousand square feet, adjacent to the university. We spend time at the university doing activities. We're walking into town all the time. In fact, we walked here tonight. And instead of being around people who are in the same exact floor plan talking about the same things, I've met artists and engineers and philanthropists and refugees and other immigrants that I work with, and it's been a marvelous place for us to land. And the lessons we learned from our camping is, one, it's scary to give it all up, give everything up that you think you should be doing and think you should have. But for us, it was worth every second. And I would do it again in a heartbeat. And what we realized is that we, didn't, we don't need a, a house or a lot of things. We want experiences, and we want people, and we want the interactions. So by camping and doing something so dramatic, we designed the life we want. So our lesson was, it's possible, and I'm willing to do it all again. So thank you.
3: emily smith you've called student number two it's very bright <laughs> um all right this is a story about working at a summer camp well this is about a story that started what happened at a summer camp if you've ever gone to summer camp or worked there you know that There's always a cute boy. (laughs) Um, Yes, I met this boy at a camp that I worked at. We worked there together. It was great. It was a summer. He lived in California. I lived in Idaho. I go to school in Oregon. It's a lot of states, a lot of distance. Um, Didn't see him for about six months. And then we had a retreat at the camp. And it was on the Oregon coast. So the summer, we worked together. And then in December, we had the retreat. And so I had just finished finals and I go on this retreat and I haven't seen him and we've been talking this whole semester and I'm just, I really like him. And nothing. The whole week he's just kind of ignoring me and we had been friends and I was confused, really frustrated, whatever. The retreat came to an end. I go to bed the last night of our retreat. And I say retreat, we were just a bunch of friends hanging out um, in a cabin. (laughs) We call it a retreat. Make it fancier, I guess. <laughs> but I go to bed. And I'm just super angry. It's like he just missed his chance. Whatever. Like I'm over it. Um, the next morning, he I get a text. It wakes me up, and he's like, "Do you want to go for a walk on the beach?" <laughs> it's like okay. Um, so we go for a walk, and we're talking, and then he hands me this letter. It's very adorable, and he's professing his love for me, um, <laughs> and asks me to be his girlfriend. And this is. This is very funny, um, <laughs> and I am like, I don't know, like, I just made up my mind that I was over you because you took so long, like, I was just like, yeah, like, let me think about it. And so then I, of course, I'm like, I need to go talk to my best friend who's in Portland. So then I leave early from the retreat, and I drive to Portland from the coast, and then I talk to, her name's Heidi, she's wonderful, um, I talk to Heidi, and then I'm like, crap, I am getting on a plane to go back to Boise for Christmas. And I realized I had forgotten my suitcase at the coast. <laughs> which they were all there, and they were all going back to where my home was in Newburgh, which is a couple miles, uh, like 40 minutes outside of Portland. And so then I'm like calling this boy. I'm like, hey, like, I want to see you before I have to get on the plane. Also, my suitcase, <laughs> can you please bring it to me? Uh, so I drive myself to the airport. I park and short-term parking, and then I'm waiting, and I'm waiting, and my flight, like I got there two hours early, and it comes on an hour, and then my flight's boarding, and they're still not there, and they got stuck in traffic, and I'm like, my suitcase, like everything I own, like I have nothing at home, what am I gonna do? So I'm waiting, and finally, and this is where it just turns into a movie scene, that he is like, starts coming and running into the airport, and I have my backpack and my other, I do not travel light, just terrible, and you will, this part, yeah. Um, <laughs> he comes running into the airport, and then I just grab the bag from him and bring it to check baggage, um, and, like set on the scale. And I'm just like, OK, like I got I to gotta get through security. And the lady, well, I can tell it's way too heavy. It's like f- 57 pounds. Um, and I'm like, oh, no. So I know uh, this boy was going to take my car back to Newburgh, so it wasn't just staying at the airport for a couple months. Um, so I was like, okay, I'm gonna like, take stuff out of my suitcase and give it to you, and you can take it back to my car. And so I'm just like, okay, what do I not need? And then my flight is boarding. Like, that's still running through my head. So I'm pulling out pairs of pants, and then like my Smeagol costume I had in there for some reason. So like, and he was like, what is this? And it's just like Gollum's face. Um, and so then I finally, it's finally 50 pounds. Exactly, and they take it, and then we're running, and as I'm running with him, and he has this, like, pile of things of mine in the Portland airport, I'm like, this is a movie, this is really a movie, what's going on? And so we just kind of beeline it through security, and he's, like, still with me, and I didn't know why, and then I realized, oh, yeah, he asked me to be his girlfriend, and I haven't responded. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so then we get to the front, and then I'm like, ugh, I gotta, I gotta go, so I give him a hug, and then I'm leaving, and he just kind of walks away, <laughs> and as I'm giving my uh, ticket and ID to the officer, I was like, oh, this is too good. I cannot pass up this moment. So I turn around really dramatically, at least in my head <laughs> it was dramatically, and I yell his name, and he's like 20 feet away, and he just turns around, and I like look him straight in the eye and just mouth the word yes, <laughs> and then I go and make it to my flight, and it's... <laughs> That's the story.
0: Thank you for listening. Story Story Night is brought to you by our story party. Amy Moran, Karis Kimball, Hannah Mae Schaefer, Karen Moore, Bob Haycock, and me, Jody Eichelberger, with big-time support from the Robert Rauschenberg Foundation. This project is supported by public funding for the arts through the Idaho Commission on the Arts, the Idaho Legislature, and the National Endowment for the Arts. We also receive support from the Boise Arts and History Department. Thank you to our media sponsor, Radio Boise, our season sponsor, Lunchbox Wax, and the camp show sponsor, Idaho Conservation League podcast production is by Stephen baldassarre our theme song was composed by dan costello who is also our musical guest and show photography is by paul budge shout out to our marketing guru and co-founder jessica holmes support this storied program get tickets to our live show and stay tuned at www.storystorynight.org or on facebook instagram and twitter at story story night